Limestone Review podcast. New Limestone Review is a literary journal from the University of Kentucky's MFA Creative Writing Program. Here, we interview writers and talk about reading, writing, and more. Keith S. Wilson is an Afrolashian poet and a Cave Conum Fellow. He is a recipient of an NEA fellowship, as well as fellowships grants from Breadloaf, Kenyon College, Tin House, McDowell, Vermont Studio Center, UCross, and Malay Colony, among others. Keith serves as assistant poetry editor at Four Way Review and digital media editor at Obsidian Journal. His first book, Field Notes on Ordinary Love, was published by Copper Canyon. His work in game design includes Once Upon a Tale, a storytelling card game designed for Lori Children's Hospital of Chicago in collaboration with the Field Museum of Chicago and Alternate Reality Games for the University of Chicago. He has worked with or taught new media with Kenyon College, the Field Museum, the Adler Planetarium, and the University of Chicago. Welcome, Keith. Thank you. So... We're going to talk about writing and process, form, and then some questions about teaching and writing and how that works together today. So we're going to start off um, talking about process. From the beginning, from inception, to a final product or polished poem, what is your writing and editing process like? Do you write poems down, use a computer, use the notes on your phone? Um, I read that for field notes, your drafts started in lowercase, and in the final version, there are poems in lowercase, and then there are those that include capital letters. How do you make decisions like those in revision? Yeah, um, so, yeah, when I write anything, um, I kind of, my process is really affected by how quickly I can do the thing, which I think started off as me trying to deal with, um, like problems with finding time to write. So um, when I first started writing poetry, I was working two full-time jobs and going to school full-time. Um, and that sort of continued. So I was, I was like working in uh, like third shift at Amazon's warehouse. And so I didn't have a whole lot of time to write. So I did away with writing out stuff by hand because then I would have to type them out again after that. Um, so I always type um, and it felt faster. I don't know. It feels, you know, this might not actually even be true, but it feels like I'm going faster if I don't capitalize or, or do punctuation. So that was part of the reason I started to do that. Um, but I noticed that writing that way uh, allows for a bunch of ambiguity. So you can't tell where sentences begin or end. Um, and so when, when I write, I, I prefer to do that now because after um, I'm done, I'll decide, uh, whether or not I'm going to, to like fix everything or not. And um, I'm, I'm really interested in, in the ways that certain lines can be read more than one way. Um, the other thing is I write every single day, um, essentially like journal writing, uh, free writing. So I generate like a lot of writing. And so a whole lot of my process ends up being um, editing, whether that's like going back and reading stuff and figuring out whether this is worth keeping or whether there's a line worth keeping um, or 
or trying to revise a poem. So um, I write every day just for a little bit, and then I spend a lot of time editing, moving stuff around. Uh, I have like a huge file where I keep the file is literally called scraps.txt, and it's just like a list of lines that I think are, are like decent. Um, or, or very good, but I don't know what to do with them. And so I'll like go through them sometimes and be like, oh, this like actually works on a poem I'm working on, or this will be the title of a poem. So uh, yeah, my process is kind of all over the place, I guess. Um, but it's like all digital, it's all on the computer. Um, yeah. So once you um, create a poem, maybe go through it, decide what's going to be capitalized if there will be any punctuation and you have it kind of looking like you want it to look from that point how much extra revision are you doing a lot or do you find yourself kind of once you get there being satisfied with that oh no no i'm, I'm never satisfied with it uh i've decided that after something's been published in a journal I won't mess with it again unless i think it's going to go into a manuscript and then after it's in the manuscript i'm done with it um, or, you know, after, like, in, in the case of my book, those, these poems are done, um, even though, you know, having read them out loud a number of times after having the book published, I kind of want to revise them more. Um, but I'm like, they're out in the world. A lot of people have, you know, will experience them this way when I read them out loud or if they buy the book, they have to be done. But um, I'm constantly editing. Every time I do submissions, um, I go through them again and and look to see if any of them need to be uh, edited anymore. So, um, if if it feels like too much, like this poem really needs a lot of work, I just put it aside and it won't be sent out. But usually, there's just like little like one word changes that I'll go through. But I do that every single time I submit. Um, I do it just in general. Like when I sit down to write, I'll go back and look at poems and and. Um, read them out loud. Um, one, of the, one of the ways that I edit is uh, the sound of something being read is really important to me. So I read it out loud, and if I ever hang up on something, that means like something needs to change. Um, so I'll read everything that I write like hundreds of times, probably, um, because I also will stop. Like I'll start reading the poem, and the moment I hit a line. I'll stop and I'll try to fix it and then I start over. So I'll, it'll take me forever to even get all the way through the poem. Um, and interestingly, like what feels perfect in that night, like the next day I'll do it again and I'll get hung up on, on different stuff. So yeah, I do a whole lot, a whole, whole lot of editing. Sounds like it. <laughs> yeah. um, when did you start writing? Did you write at all when you were a kid or a high school student? Um, and I know that you attended Northern Kentucky University, isn't that correct? Yeah. And did you major in English when you were there? Uh, so I've been writing since as long as I can remember. I was always making things. I made um, board games and greeting cards and short stories when I was little. Um, those are like the three things I remember making a lot of. Um, and I always thought that I would write books. Um, and to me, books were... Or I guess essentially novels, they were like one long story. Um, so it wasn't until college that I decided to write poetry, although I read it. And I did, I've like gone back and looked through files, and I, I did write poetry actually. Um, it was like very influenced by Edgar Allan Poe, <laughs> very <laughs> rhymy and dark. Um, so yeah, I've been, I've been writing forever. Um, at at uh, NKU, I wrote, or I, uh, 
I majored in computer science for four years, actually, before I switched to English, which is part of the reason that I had so little time is when I switched to English, I like my requirements were all messed up. I like did not have any of the correct things uh, to graduate. So I, did, I, I like had to ask uh, special permission to take extra classes to try to get finished um, in a reasonable amount of time. Um, but yeah, I went to school actually in computer programming for a little while, um, for a long while, and really did not enjoy it. Uh, I think I like half chose it because I'm interested in technology and video games. Um, and always did like decent, uh, decently in, um, in math and half because I was just like very introverted and it felt like if you're an introvert, this is what you take. Um, <laughs> which is probably like, I think people are still doing that. Uh, but that's like not, those are like not necessarily reasons to go to computer programming. You really should like enjoy, I think some of that because you're just sitting in a room staring at a screen for hours and hours and. I essentially do that now with something that I love. Um, I can't imagine doing it with something that I could care less about. Yeah. Um, people would come to class like so excited about like an algorithm that they had figured out, and I was like, I cannot believe anyone wants to talk about this right now. <laughs> um, but that's like you know, I I come I would come into class with that same excitement with um, when we were talking about writing. So that was like the the switch for me. Cool. Um, and you grew up partly in California. And then in Northern Kentucky, um, like we just said, you attended NKU and you belong to a group of writers known as the Affirmation Poets. Um, and that term represents um, really a combination of Appalachian and African American. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I looked it up online um, and found the full list of members, which is impressive and long um, and it says that um, Afrolashan represents the multicultural richness of the 13 state Appalachia which is not a racially homogenized region as some may think um, what is it like to belong to this group and to represent them and the region in your work it's I mean it's every it's everything essentially I I, I don't know where I would be if, if I didn't have uh, a community. I, when, when I switched to, to being uh, an English major, um, I, I, st I had no idea what I was doing at all. Um, I was like really convinced that I would, that I would like achieve something, but I didn't know what that would be. Um, and there's like not a lot of support, um, for the arts in general, um, especially depending on what you're writing about. So I didn't realize that um, when I was writing about um, about like racist things that had happened to me, that that people were not engaging with it, not necessarily because it was not good, but because they were uncomfortable talking about it, um, which is like something that I recognize all the time now when I teach. Um, you know, depending on what someone's writing about, students will just like not say anything, or they'll say that's good and then that's it. Um, which you like sense when you when you're writing that like maybe someone didn't mean that, or everyone else had all these other comments to say about these other poems, but no one ever has anything to say about mine. Um, and so, like meeting other people who had experienced many of the things that I've experienced, um, you know, it, it like it really guided the way that I think about writing. Um, 
that I think about community, that I, I, that I even think about Kentucky. I, I did not have, um, all, you know, I had a lot of experiences that were very negative moving from uh, California to, to the part of Kentucky that I'm from. Um, the most famous thing that happened recently is like the Covington boys controversy. Um, that's like right where I grew up and, uh, and on, on the school bus, I got called all kinds of racist names. People didn't know what I was. They thought I was Mexican. Um, so, like, for the first time having, like, meeting other people of color, meeting other black people um, who, were, who, who were writing what I was writing, um, yeah, it, it, it was everything. And, and I've moved away. I, I live in Chicago now. Um, but growing up in, in Kentucky um, has, you know, I write about it all the time. I think about it all the time. Um, I think you carry you carry the places that you're from everywhere that you go, from like the ways that you say things to the things that you prefer to do. Um, yeah, yeah. That people, you know, will ask me. You know, they'll think I have an accent. I, I don't entirely know what, what what this is, but people ask me what my accent is, and depending on who I'm talking to, they'll be like, "Oh, it's from when you lived in California," or they'll be like, "Oh, it's from when you lived in Kentucky." It might just not even be either of those things it might just be me, um, but it, it, you know you carry all that with you, and, and so it's been yeah it's been so important. Yeah, so I mean you kind of already touched on this, but how do you feel region impacts writing? You said like you carry it with you. Um, do you feel any obligation towards region, or do you think that it's just like a natural input output? <laughs> um, well, so I I write I essentially write rhetorically. I, I care about things and I want to learn more about them and I want to communicate um, things that I've noticed and not everyone necessarily thinks about their writing that way to me it doesn't feel like an obligation to to write about um, to about, write about race or gender um, it's hard um, but whatever I would write about would end up being hard in some way um, I think it's just like part of the process of sharing sharing is hard um, whether or not it's even artistic um, so, yeah, so I think I think it's important, uh, and I, I, I kind of wish that everyone did it. But I also understand that like the way that people share um, and the kinds of things that they share is different. Um, you know, I, I I kind of hate the idea that um, that a writer feels like they have to write about blackness in a certain way or directly, otherwise they're not writing about blackness, for instance. So, um, so I, yeah, I don't I don't try to tell. Um, anyone else what they ought, what they ought to, to be writing about or how um, that, that, that's like the way that I happen to write about it um, and I think it's important yes yeah, so I think like tying into what you just said um, you talk a lot in this collection field notes on ordinary love about like identity race image um, the observation of black and then there's a poem on um, page 55 called Black Matters after D.H. Lawrence um, and I want you to talk a little bit about that also after D.H. Lawrence like I don't know very much about him other than that he was an English writer in like what 1800s early 1900s yeah. um, and controversial is it right? Yeah, I mean, all <laughs> in certain way, all uh, all writers from <laughs> if you go back far enough were controversial. Um, yeah. I, so this is a poem that um, I'm 
trying to, to think of how to describe the process of, of having written this. Um, but it's essentially after a poem, uh, I think it's Shadows by D.H. Lawrence. It follows kind of like the sound scheme of the poem um, and, and kind of the line length. Um, and it's a poem that I find really fascinating because of the way that it sounds and um, and the ending. So he, he also has this ending that's sort of like my having told you plainly um, where they are or how they are, which I, I feel like is such like a... It feels, the poem that he wrote, um, I can never entirely figure out what it's about, which is one of the reasons I, I find it interesting. And then he like just states this thing at the end, like, I've written a whole poem about this. How, how is it that you've missed what, I, what I'm talking about? Um, that made me kind of want to reimagine this as, as being about, about race, because this is like, it feels like this is what the conversation um, of talking about like police brutality is with like on the internet is people, um, seem to really miss like very direct points about about the violence that's happening um yeah and so i was trying to like to sort of remap that um and it, it after having finished it i w i didn't really feel like it, it was actually after the poem exactly it was like um a memory of the sound of it so i i, I made it after dh lawrence as opposed to, to to after the poem yeah it's a little bit it's um the original poem it has a lot of like shadow imagery too, um, and in this collection, I write a lot about light, um, and then the idea of blackness being, you know, a, a, a racial category as, as well as a color, and all these other other different ideas. Yeah, I mean, now that the book has been out, what almost a year. Yeah. Correct. And um, seems to be very well received <laughs> um, and have kind of a large readership. Do you have people talking to you about these poems, like on a personal level? Do you ever have people come up and saying that they connected? Yeah, sometimes I get emails um, from high school students or from teachers, like on behalf of high school students, which is like my favorite thing. Um, being in high school is hard. Um, and so like doing anything that like someone, um, who's that age range connects to or is inspired by, or even like just curious about, like, I just love that. Um, it's part of the reason I like to work with high school students in general. Um, and when I was in high school, sometimes when I work with, with high school students, um, or someone, will like raise their hand after a reading or come up and talk to me. A lot of times it actually has to do with, with being mixed race, especially people who are mixed race who are like not recognized for like either of the things that they are. Um, those, those kids tend to, uh, to come and talk to me. And that's really important to me because uh, I had, I didn't even know, this is kind of wild, but I like didn't really know that people were still writing poetry until I was like in college, um, let alone was, was I aware that like black people were writing poetry. I, I, the poetry that I was aware of in high school was all like Edgar Allan Poe, D.H. Lawrence, um, Shakespeare. It was like both people who had long been dead and always were white people. Um, and there's like obviously ways in which I connected with it and ways in which people always will connect with art no matter what it's about. Um, 
but it really means something to like cease to see work that is like particular to your life experience in some way. Um, so yeah, it's, it's I love it um, when I get to hear that that something I've written or something that I've performed has connected to someone in that way. Yeah, that's really special. Yeah. Um, thinking about form in this collection. Yeah. Um, I noticed a couple of things, poems with couplets, um, one that has exactly 14 lines that felt to me like an echo of a sonnet. Um, one of my favorite poems was The Lost Quatrain of the Ballad of a Red Field. Um, and there's, like the title suggests, <laughs> uh, a missing, a final quatrain. Um, there's some ekphrastic poems, um, an ode. There's a prose poem that I also really um enjoyed among others so I would say looking at this that this is a like a form heavy book in some way even if maybe the forms aren't like strict in their form there's a lot of shadow of form present and when you were writing these were you considering that is that something that came in in revision and what drew you towards certain forms or like I said shadow of forms and away from others I I love 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 form. I could talk about this all day. Um, yeah, I would I would consider this is so within poetry, uh, like within the poetry community or the po- the poetic tradition. Um, I don't think I would necessarily be called a formalist, and yet I believe that I am um, because people often believe talk about form as being as you said, like a strict thing in which you use received forms. And so you, um, there's like a a kind of technical proficiency that observes something that's already been done um, extremely closely. um, And that's like what formalism is. But I think formalism is engaging with form and that's what I do. So I think that form communicates all kinds of different things. Um, I have like mixed feelings about it because Form often communicates things to people who've read a lot of poetry, and so it ends up being uh, a thing that that is very hard for someone to enter who um, is just beginning to read poetry or or hardly ever reads it. Um, And so, yeah, like noticing that something's 14 lines and maybe referencing a sonnet is something that you have to have read sonnets to to like know about, right? Um, But I also kind of think that's cool. And so I do all the time, I think. the way that form works is it often communicates something without you even having to read the poem. Like even the, the, the form of a poem, the fact that there are line breaks, the moment that you look at something before you even read it and see that it has line breaks, you have all these associations with it that maybe this is elevated writing, um, that maybe it's serious, maybe it's um, autobiographical. And those are like things that may not be true when you start reading it, but they're the things that um, you come to the poem thinking about, and in some ways, the poem is still sort of talking about. So, if you've written a son, if when um, when Gwendolyn Brooks wrote the the Aeneid or the Aeneid, um, she wrote this epic poem about like an ordinary black woman, and she was saying something about black women being deserving of epics, and she was saying something about what epics have traditionally been, right? And so, yeah, I, I have. Um, it's 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 something that I care a whole lot about, and I'm always writing about. And in terms of like what I'm, like why I choose them, or um, 
or what I avoid. I, yeah, I don't know. It's sort of like what what inspires me in the moment. Sometimes I'm writing something and it's not in form, and I, I realize like, oh, this actually has a lot to do with this other thing, um, and I can actually sort of reference it not directly with the text, but with like the form that the text takes. So, um, like. Like couplets are a way to make something feel more formal than it than it would if it was just like a block of text, um, or the the poem that you're talking about, the prose poem. Um, I find myself defending pigeons. Um, to me, part of the reason that I did that was that prose poetry, um, like on the page, looked like a newspaper column. Um, which I reference in the poem, and it's like such an ordinary thing, and I write all about like ordinary things and the ways that they're beautiful in this collection. Um, so I kind of wanted to like reference that without ever having to like write that in in the text of of the poem. I don't know if that that answered everything. Yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think that's helpful for people who are interested in poetry and learning about poetry and the way that they think about form. Yeah. Um, for sure, I think a lot of people coming to school now for English or for creative writing feel apprehensive towards form because it feels so traditional and so old school but like what you're describing is a really modern way to engage with it that's super powerful and helpful I think for people like me in an MFA program right now I think I think that there's a that there's a way that form becomes sort of like a gatekeeping device. Um, this is true of all kinds of technically proficient demands made upon artists that um, that traditionally the people who have had who have had access to the things that would make them good at that, whether it's like painting something photorealistically um, or like recognizing um, iambic pentameter. Those are things that are given to only certain people, and that when you demand that this is how writing poetry, or this is how writing formal poetry, this is how it, you have to engage with it. Um, the moment that you make that demand is the moment that you like shut out a bunch of people from from being able to engage with poetry in that way. Um, and there's like a bunch of ways to address that. One, like as a writer, one way is to just learn to do it. Um, but I don't necessarily believe that that's the way that you have to to um, respond to that, right? Like I, I think you can learn to do it, and I've learned it. You know, I can write in. Uh, a Shakespearean sonnet or a Petrarchan sonnet, um, but I don't want to. <laughs> like, um, I I want to to use it to inform the things that I care about, which were not necessarily the things that people cared about who were writing Shakespearean sonnets. Um, I want to you know change it into into um, the topics and feelings that I have now. Yeah, that's great. Um, so we mentioned the prose poem. Um, defending, I find myself defending pigeons. And I'm really curious about pigeons. Um, it sounds silly, but the idea of a pigeon or the image of a pigeon is in here quite a number of times. Yeah. And um, of course, specifically in the prose poem, um, pigeons are such like a background image in real life and in books and movies. They get in the way, people find them annoying, um, especially in bigger cities, it seems. Um, and I'm curious why there is a gravitation of presence of thought for you towards pigeons. And I imagine that it's something tangible, though, of course, it could be metaphoric. <laughs> I'm just curious about that. I want to know. Yeah, no, it's both. Uh, so the... 
the metaphoric, so, so the part that's less tangible um, is I love pigeons in part because, because of all those things. I love that they, um, they're kind of the wildlife of cities. Like if you hate the fact that in cities there's like no nature, um, then I think you ought to appreciate the nature that exists there uh, and not be like all the things that can grow in the city are weeds and pests and disgusting. Um, like maybe appreciate some of the things about them. Pigeons are like physically beautiful um, and they're like literally like the, of the same, um, they're like the same as doves essentially. So um, the difference between a dove and a, and a pigeon is, is like is the pigment. They make the same sound. Their bodies are shaped the same. Um, they, they prefer living on cliffs in the same way. Um, another term for, for pigeon is, uh, is rock dove. And I think that that's like, you know, there's a lot of ways in which that is saying something um, that, that when, the bird is pure white. It represents like peace and marriage. And when it's any other color, it represents, uh, you know, a pest and that pigeons live in the city and like all of that, like maps onto, to, um, human identities in a lot of, a lot of different ways. Um, but there's also like very direct ways in which I care about pigeons. So, um, so when I was little, there were kids on the street who were um, throwing rocks at a pigeon and hitting it with a stick because it had like a messed up wing. Um, and my dad came out and yelled at them all and took the pigeon and kept it in the garage. And he bought like all this bird seed. In a lot of ways, like it feels very different. Like I had like never seen that side of my dad in a, in a way. Um, only because I had never seen, like, had the opportunity to see him do it, I guess. Um, and so it, it, it was wild to me um, to see him, like, care about, like, wildlife, essentially, even though he loves dogs. Um, so that was one part of it. And then also just, like, grow I had, like, a pigeon as a pet, basically. <laughs> um, and it's, like, not a pet. It, it, like, would not, like, let us pet it or anything. It would fly all around when we would open the garage, or try to fly all around when we would open the garage. Um, and eventually its wing healed, and my dad opened the garage and let it fly away. But, like, his, his name is Router um, because he, he, like, pooped all over my dad's router. Um, and we, yeah, like, so he, that was, like, part of my life um, was, was, like, thinking about um, a pigeon as, like, a thing that experienced pain. Um, and, and could heal from it. Um, we, you could see it after it healed, we could tell which pigeon it was because it never flew like correctly. Um, it like flew with a limp essentially. Um, and yeah. And then having moved to Chicago, um, my walk to, to work, I would walk under the bridge and there were all these pigeons and I, yeah, I just find them beautiful. They're like all these different colors and they hardly ever repeat. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> That's really interesting and a lot I did not know before. <laughs> um, well, you mentioned your dad caring for this pigeon, and your dad has a strong presence in the book, um, in Field Notes of Ordinary Love, in a lot of ways. Um, one of the things that stood out to me is that it seems like, and I could be incorrect, but it seems like you grew up with kind of like science as sacred. Yeah. Would you say that that's true? And, and that seems to be, um, at least in part, because of your father who was a an engineer yeah he's an electrical engineer yeah it's it's like a, a whole lot because of him yeah and so i i'm curious about the ways in which that impacted you growing up and how that impacts the way you write i mean we see in the collection a lot of 
like scientific terms or space terms amongst other things. And um, yeah, that's something that stood out to me that felt really present, this like notion of science as sacred. And it's totally opposite from how I grew up, <laughs> which was like overemphasis on God and like way underemphasis on science. Um, so I was kind of marveling at that and the way that that seems so uh, kind of wonderful. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think... I think that no matter who you are, there's something that has that space of, of like wonder and, and hope. Um, and whether, you know, whether that's God or science or for, I think for a lot of people, it's actually like poetry or literature, um, that, that I think is like central to, to like living in the world in a lot of ways. I think, so my dad was an electrical engineer um, and the way that we connected um, when I was growing up and even to this day, a lot of it surrounds science essentially, like we'll, we'll talk about something um, and to a certain degree math. Um, you know, he loved it. He would watch Star Trek. I would watch Star Trek with him. We would talk about, you know, if a, a news article comes out that's like about a new advancement, we'll talk about it all the time. And so, for yeah, in a lot of ways, science is also sort of synonymous with my dad. Um, and then I have a brother who also talks about it, and it's all it's like all of one kind that we that we all talk about it together, um, even when we don't necessarily share other th interests in common. So, um, my dad doesn't read poetry. Um, he, he reads, um, but he doesn't read poetry. And so that's like not a thing that we talk about. Um, but science is there, is there for us. But yeah, I think, um, part of the reason I use, I use science in this collection is that like, for, for me, it was sort of this sacred thing, um, and is the sacred thing in, in, in part because it's like unknowable and there's a way in which that's both terrifying and inspiring that, you know, there's parts of the universe that we'll never reach. There's things that we may never know. Um, there's things that we thought we would never know and do know, um, that, that are incredible. And so I sort of like in the collection map that onto, onto love, because I think those are all things that are true of love as well. Um, whether in general or with a particular person, um, that's sort of like, awe-inspiring and grand and huge and infinite and yet there are like parts of it that you know um like very well uh, yeah yeah I, I i continue to 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 use science imagery um even in the poems that i write having written after this book yes yeah, so, i mean i one of my questions is what kinds of poems are you writing now um are you still writing poems are you doing some like genre blending stuff um do you find yourself exploring the same or similar themes? I mean, you mentioned science, or have you branched off into something new? I think I think my themes are probably all the same. The stuff that I'm writing is very different in a lot of ways. Um, so I've like pushed the, the stuff I was just talking about with, with form, I've pushed even further. So the stuff that I'm writing now um, are highly visual. Um, so I'll use pie charts or, um, or graphs or diagrams or pictures, and then I'll sort of write and, tr and try to integrate it into the thing that I've, I've, um, I've drawn or sketched out. And part of the reason for that is um, what I was talking about before, that forms communicate things. I'm interested in the ways that forms can communicate things even when they're not from artistic traditions. So we, if you look at a pie chart, um, 
you have certain ideas about what that might mean, again, without having to even see what it's about. So it, it often has to do with um, breaking something down into percentages. Um, and so I have like a poem in which I use a pie chart and the, the key for it or the legend um, has to do with my identity because that has to do with the one drop rule and um, the idea of, of race has, has, has existed in America in which um, for a long time um, we, you know, we talked about race as, as having to do with percentages, essentially that a mulatto is half black, half white and there were quadroons and octoroons. Um, and so I can sort of use a visual form that in, in fact, a lot more people have associations with than with um, poetic forms because almost everyone has seen a pie chart, but not everyone knows like what a hustle is or would recognize it. Um, and so, yeah, those are the poems that I'm writing now. Um, the text of them is probably similar to some of the things I'm doing um, in Field Notes on Ordinary Love, but the like actual forms that they're taking are, are very different and are weird in terms of like knowing how to share them, um, which is like a whole new thing. So um, a lot of the poems now are so visual that they either don't have a way to read them out loud or they have so many ways to read them out loud that um, you just have to choose one if you read them out loud. And that's like not the case with this book. I can, every one of these, almost every one of these poems actually, um, a couple of them are, are, are not the, um, not read this way, but most of them I can read out loud, and that's the way that you probably would also read it out loud. And the new ones I have um, are so visual that there's stuff that's like only happening visually on the page, and you couldn't really um, read it. So yeah, those are my. That's the new stuff I'm working on. We'll see. Okay. We'll see where it goes. Um, well, I can't wait to see it. Um, okay. How do you think? This being said, the way how like how visual these new poems of yours are, do you think that media can interact with poetry and, and maybe should as we keep entering the age of technology? And I mean, you are both a video game designer and also a poet. Do you incorporate the use of different kinds of media into teaching or uh, writing poetry? Yeah. The, so I try to use it when I teach the difficulty with teaching with technology, which any teacher who's ever tried will tell you is like getting things to work. Uh, and you, there's like only so much of the class time you want to devote to like troubleshooting. Um, so yeah, it can be really hard. Um, you kind of need like a program that supports you um, specifically with that, that maybe you have someone in the class helping you or um, a lab or something. Um, so I try, but it's, it's yeah, it's, it's hard. Um, technology is like ironically, a way into uh, making something accessible and making something totally inaccessible and the lines like suit like razor thin um, but yeah in terms of like writing stuff for media I I think I think whether like whatever your opinion is about it it's going to happen um, and so I don't know that I even feel the need to like make sure that it happens if that makes sense like um, I've experimented with writing poems that are interactive and it's really, really hard. Um, so poems are traditionally like really focused on authorial intent that like, here's the order in which you will read these words and, um, and here are all the words. And then like, that's like the, the starting step of most poems. Um, the moment that you make something interactive, you can't control the order that they'll read something in, you can't even control necessarily that they'll read all of it. This is like the case in like video games that um, some person, one person will play a game and 
um, go to one continent and another one will go to another continent and they'll never experience the same game. Um, and that can happen, you know, when you're writing interactive stuff, when you're writing um, in totally new forms, um, you run across all these things that are not difficulties in the, in like the original form. And so I don't know, uh, like I'll keep working on it and try to make something good, but it might be the case that like the person who figures this out, who like makes it work, um, is like someone much younger than me, someone who, who grew up, um, seeing no difference between, um, like reading on a laptop and reading in a book, um, where I was, you know, I didn't have laptops when I was growing up. So, um, so there is still some sort of like distinction in my mind, even if I try to break it, um, that these are like two different things, like someone, it's sort of like the case of all new genres, all new music, um, that the people who are really, um, innovating in that, in that thing are often like, um, the people who grew up among all these, all the other different things and combine them. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I, I think there's all kinds of um, amazing stuff that will come out of um, writing that is that uses digital media that uses video and sound and um, and video games um, and I'm kind of working on it um, mm -hmm. but it might not be me it might be someone else yeah cool. well to close out our time together would you like to read us a poem from Field Notes on Ordinary Love sure um what poem should I read? I guess I'll read, uh, having talked about it, I'll read, I find myself defending pigeons. Okay. I love how you never find their bodies, how they never rest their eyes. I love how their breasts are comforters unfolding by their breath. I love that pigeons live in the city, that underestimation never stopped a pigeon from unlatching itself or being old. I want them all unspooling in the air and bridges that are half sigh and half pigeon. I want to harbor their coo and utilize it for energy. I want to learn to use them the way they want to be used. I want to pigeon tail into a quiet night to let their oddness sit in our hands. You can never know a language until you quiet your own. I want people to write about them. They're leaving ships for land or standing on their own on a marble statue in the shimmer of a field. I want to talk about the term rock dove, argue over whether or not it's imperialist. I want the media to implicate us in the pigeon problem, for a couple to sit with their asparagus and kids and realize none of this is far from them, whatever we think. I want oils and watercolors and inks. I want still life with pigeons since not a one has ever been portrayed with soul, a flight of them around old bread, and how they're all the same. How all the world is here with them in hate since they are ra rats adorned with angel wings. And the children down the street are free to chase their drag. They want to see a pigeon's rouge entirely. Let the pigeon have her pigment. Consider the pigeon's brown and green and everything. The brandishing of his nakedness to the sun as if nothing is absolute. I love the pigeon's shoulders, tongues, and wedding nights. I love the pigeons' place in history, their obsession with living in the letters of our signs. I love their minds, or what I've come to believe is their theology. Who knows? Let the pigeons speak. Ask the closest pigeon for his number, for her middle name, if they are ready to die, if the sky gets crowded enough to consider war, if their stores are closed on Sundays. 
I want to be ready for them to be just like us, but more ready for them to be completely different. I don't want to waste any time tracing a pigeon's God to Abraham. I want to get started. Some of us feed pigeons. I love sometimes our care. I love, I think, the park bench. I love apples, but I do not love pears. The weather. I love the pigeons, the revolution of wheel to sky. I love the newspaper graying in a different air. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the New Limestone Review Podcast. Formerly, I wanted to also ask about ghosts. Special thanks to the University of Kentucky's Department of English, our MFA faculty, the Visiting Writers Series, and to each of our contributors. New Limestone Review publishes monthly online issues and one yearly print issue. You can find more information about submitting and our guidelines on our website at newlimestonereview.as.uky.edu.